On February 15, 2002, a San Diego Padres outfielder named Mike Darr died in a car accident during spring training. I was there for the aftermath, and I'll never forget it. Just stillness, silence, a clubhouse filled with people who didn't know what to do with themselves. Athletes are supposed to be strong, fast, powerful, larger than life. They bring us joy and thrills and entertainment. They are not supposed to die young, ever. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Tanya Ganguly, the fourth-year Los Angeles Times Lakers beat writer, and a woman who has spent the past two days covering the death of Kobe Bryant. And it's a nightmare come to life, an unspeakable tragedy. And Tanya has done her job to perfection. She truly has. This is episode number 140. Let's sling some yang. All right, Tanya. I, you know, I always go into this intro where I'm like, ah, oh, thanks for doing this and blah, blah, blah. And I just, um, I got to think you are exhausted. Are you exhausted? It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a, it's been a really, uh, surreal and I, I mean, I, I don't even know all the, adjectives you use about the last day and a half but um you know you come home from i i i I was on the lakers road trip you come home from the trip you're expecting to have a light day and then they've been everything's been fine with the team there's no drama you're and, and that's sort of what you're preparing yourself for and then just this this horrible tragedy happens and and you just have to jump into action and um it's been it's, it's been a lot of, you know, it's, it's both time-wise and emotionally very difficult because I've spent, you know, I've covered, this is my fourth year covering the Lakers and I've spent the last three years really getting to know a lot of people who are just so crushed, you know, their, their, their lives are falling apart because of this. And, um, it's, it's just been, there's a, there's an emotional difficulty in, in reporting a story like this because it's just so terrible for so many people and, and uh, just so difficult in general. What's interesting because we're always told, or at least I I think it's more depicted this way, maybe in movies and TV that journalists are supposed to be these hardened uh, onlookers who are able to, or bystanders who are able to observe a scene and not get emotionally connected to it and not feel the sort of depth of, of feelings. Um, That's impossible. Is it not? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, there've been so many of my colleagues who I really respect and who, who spent a lot of time around Kobe. I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't cover him. I mean, I, I came into, I, I've spoken to him a few times. We did a few phone interviews. Um, but I didn't, I didn't have a whole season with him. And I just, I, I'm actually, I was thinking about this. I'm actually very grateful that I've never had to deal with, uh, this kind of story with somebody that I spent a lot of time with, but when you're on a beat, you're spending so much time with these guys. And, and it is, I I mean, you can't separate, I mean, journalists, I think, I think that journalists have to think about both their uh, responsibility to the truth and to objectivity, but also um, sort of the emotional impact of what they do. And 
this is this is a really prime example of that because it's it is uh, you know it is it is a day that I mean somebody that a lot of us knew and many people many of us knew very well um, lost his life and so did his 13 year old daughter who we've all seen since she was she was a little baby and she was a little toddler running around with him. You were with the Lakers. The Lakers played in Philadelphia. How did you first get word that this happened? And then how does it follow from a, from a journalistic standpoint? Like you find out and then what happens? I, I was on a plane as just like the Lakers were. And like many of the Lakers, I was sleeping because I had been up. Uh, I, I, I was working until 1 a.m. the night before. LeBron had passed Kobe on the all-time scoring list. It was a big moment. I wanted to get it right. So I was up very late. Um, and, and I had a West Coast deadline. So it's, you know, all those things combined. I was up very late. I was at the arena until after one in the morning. Um, and then I went home, back to my hotel, slept for a few hours, got on a flight. Um, I had a connection. So I was, I was up early too. So the Lakers, the Lakers flew out at about 11 a.m. Um, I flew out before them, but I was, I was taking a nap and I woke up. I had my, my phone connected to the Wi-Fi and I woke up and I had dozens, more than 50 text messages from people. You know, I grew up in LA, so I had a lot of people just that I knew growing up who were like, oh my, like, are you, are you okay? It was a lot of, a lot of people were asking that. A lot of people were saying, is this true? Um, there were a lot of radio stations calling and saying, can you come on and do the show? Um, and, and obviously my editor is also saying, what do you have? Do you know, can we confirm this? Because I, I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but we were very careful at the LA times about not reporting something that was inaccurate. So we tried very hard to make sure that if we reported something, it was confirmed a hundred percent true. And, you know, we waited, I mean, after, after TMZ first reported the crash, we waited until we had it you know, before saying it, because you just, you just never know with these situations. You just, you want to make sure that you aren't spreading false information. And from what I gather, there was a lot of false information floating around there. Um, so we did our best to, to avoid that and only report what we knew to be fact. Mitchell, so you were on the plane when all these texts are coming yeah. in? Or- yeah, I was on the plane. I had, I had my Wi-Fi connected and I just, I was watching, uh, I was watching Jojo the Rabbit. Is that what the movie's mm-hmm. called? Yep. I was watching that and I, and I fell asleep. Not because it was a boring movie. I just was tired. It's, I mean, it had been a nine day road trip and it was exhausting and I was just tired. The night before was very intense and, um, I, I took a nap and when I woke up, we were dealing with all of this. So you're on a plane. You find out this information. How much can you do from a plane and what do you do on the plane? Well, you can text people. So that was good. At least people who have an iPhone. So I texted, I, I, I think while, while I was on the plane, I was able to confirm that, uh, I mean, confirm the horrible news that, uh, Gianna was on the flight with him. Um, you know, I texted with some, some people I knew in the organization, just, just to, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's a tough thing because you have, you have to confirm certain details, but you also want to be respectful of these people who are just crushed and devastated. Um, so I, I, I was at that point, by the time I woke up, I think we had confirmed the news. And so I was able to, the people that I reached out to, I mostly was just, just offering condolences and just, 
um, you know, telling them that I was so sorry for their loss because, um, you know, like I said, I, I am constantly around so many people who knew him so well and loved him and just have been around him for 20, year, 20 or more years. Does it affect you as someone who grew up in LA? Does, do you think it makes a difference if you were whatever, a native of Houston or New York or whatever? Does it, do you think it impacted you any differently? I, I mean, I, I think I understood the connection that the city had with him better because of that, for sure. Um, you know, I, 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 and like I, like I mentioned, I had so many of my friends from growing up texting me, talking, telling me about all these emotional messages that they had sent between their families and, and, you know, there, there is a very, there is a very emotional connection that people in LA have to Kobe. Um, there's, you know, he, I, I remember growing up that Kobe was because he had never played anywhere else. I think, I think there was, I think, I feel like nationally, I mean, I don't know what the narrative was that much nationally, but I feel like part of it was that between Kobe and Shaq and they always had these feuds and it was part of the drama and it was part of like the tension of the Lakers. And, um, it was always, it was always great content. And before, before we talked about great content, it was always great content, but I feel like Laker fans always identified more with Kobe because he hadn't been anywhere else. And because, you know, even, even after he had wanted the trade and even after he had done all this, he was still there and he, took the Lakers through two different eras. He created the standard of, of, uh, he created the standard where nothing less than a championship was enough. And, um, you know, I, I do think because I, because I grew up here, I understood that. I understood that on a, on a, maybe a different level. Um, and I understood, you know, I ha- I just, I just had so many friends reaching out to me and wanting to share their, just their pain. Um, you know, which, which I think is, is, was very real. I mean, I, different from the people that actually knew him and that actually watched him grow up and, and develop personal relations, relationships with them. I mean, that was obviously much worse for them, but, but there was this connection that people in LA had to him. And, um, he was very beloved for most of his time with the Lakers. So what do you do? You, you're on the plane. You learn all this, you make, you, you text, you land. What do you do? Uh, I went straight to, so I had a, my boyfriend was nice enough to, he was supposed to pick me up from the airport anyway. Um, and I told him, I think I'm just going to have to go into the office. And because, because of, I don't know if you've flown out of LAX or uh, if you've flown into LAX yeah, uh, that much, but it recently, but the, the lift, Uber situation is just a complete disaster. So I, I, I asked him to come get me because I was like, I, I was like, it's going to save me like 30 minutes if you, if you just come get me. And he was nice enough to do it. And, um, so I, he picked me up and dropped me off basically at the, at the, uh, our office, which is in El Segundo now. Um, and I knew I would need a car. So he left the car there and, um, you know, I just, I just went to the office and started working. Um, I was calling people. I was just trying to find out what was, what things were like, uh, how everyone was handling this. Um, you know, it was hard because most of the people that were the closest to Kobe didn't want to talk yesterday. And that's, I mean, totally understandable. 
but most of them were just trying to come to grips with what had happened. Um, but I did, I, you know, our office right now is maybe like, a it's, it's a two blocks away from the Lakers facility. So I, once I heard that they were starting to let people into the facility, uh, let, let people into the parking lot of the facility to do, um, to, you know, leave, leave candles or leave flowers and sign the, they had a big canvas there to sign. I went down there to, to go see it and I found, I found a couple, a couple of Lakers employees and I, I just kind of said hi to them. And, um, the person who, the person who was, who had sort of orchestrated all this was Lisa Estrada, who's their, uh, their vice president of facilities and business, uh, building operations. And she had kind of very last minute. And I mean, I don't, I don't think she even had processed fully what had happened, but she put this all together and created a place where fans could go and, grieve together. Um, it was, it was pretty incredible that she was able to do that so quickly, but you know, I, I went down there and, and checked that out and then just came back up to the office and got to writing. So the, the hardest calls I ever had to make of my career, um, easily was back when I was at SI after immediately after September 11th and I was yeah. profiling a, uh, a, a, a former Columbia basketball player who died in nine 11. And this was probably three days after the, the terrorist attacks and, and those calls are so preposterously hard and painful and you, you, you kind of feel like an asshole making them. How do you go about make, do you call Jeannie Buss? Do you try reaching magic? Do you, are we supposed to give them time? Is it, is it part of the job that we just do that? You know, I felt like I needed to, it, I felt like I needed to let them decide that. So, um, I, I reached out to, everybody that I had a number for. Um, and I just said, I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss. Uh, so maybe sometimes I said, how are you? Sometimes I said, you know, I just wanted to extend my condolences. Um, and then I, if, if it seemed like they were willing to talk, I would push that and I would try to get, try to find, you know, see what they wanted to say. But I really, I really wanted to leave it up to them. Um, you know, because I, I, I don't, I think as a journal, I think that's something that you have to sort of learn as a journalist, right? Like, how do you handle these kinds of situations where you, you have to write a story, but also you're dealing with these people that have gone through something very, very real. Um, and something that's just, that's horrible. And, um, they're not gonna, you know, like you, you have to, I, I really think you have to let them decide if, you have to let them decide when they want, how they want to, how is a better word, but how they want to talk about this, how they want to address their grief. And maybe they don't want to at all. And, um, you know, I think that's something that as a reporter, I think you have to be sensitive to. I don't know if this is a dumb question or not in this kind of circumstance, but are you in being sensitive and sort of compassionate, which are obviously good attributes, um, you'd all worry about whatever your competitor at ESPN.com or the athletic getting a LeBron or a genie or a Linda Rambis or someone to comment. And you didn't because you were kind of sensitive about it all. It's, it's not a dumb question. Um, I, I've thought about that. And I, I, the way that I've handled this whole situation is that I've treated it very differently from any other big story that I would, that I would treat. Um, you know, I, it, this isn't, 
I have a friend who I have fr- friends who cover news and who cover, you know, tragic situations all the time. And their job is to to get the you know the best information about what's happening. And and it's it's different because they are not covering they are not covering these things with people that they know, with people that they've they've been around and that um, that they have relationships with. You know, when when something terrible happens, um, mo- most most of the tragedies that people report on, I feel like are things that happen to, uh, you know, people that we don't know before these tragedies happen to them. Um, and this was, this is a very different situation. And I, you know, I, I, I was not getting pressure from my editors to, there, there wasn't a sense of being first so much as being right. Um, there was a real sense of wanting to make sure that whatever we had, whatever we reported was a hundred percent correct. And, um, that, that, that was the most important thing. And, you know, I, I, normally I wouldn't do this, but today I, I retweeted a competitor because he had an, he had a nugget of information that, um, I didn't know and that I thought people who followed me on Twitter would be interested in would be interested in hearing. And, you know, I, I later confirmed it and I, you know, it was, it was part of my story today, but, but I, I felt like this was different. You know, I, I felt like this was not a day when anyone really cared about who's first, who's getting this first. You just wanted to be able to tell as, as accurate and as truthful a picture as you could. You, um, so you, there's a piece uh, that ran. It's so weird. Isn't it weird? It, this happened yesterday. Doesn't it feel like it happened yeah. 10 days ago? I know. It, it really does. Um, so you had a piece around yesterday. Uh, Lakers players shocked and speechless after learning of Kobe Bryant's death. And you, you co-bylined it with Broder Turner. Your lead was the Lakers were flying home from Philadelphia somewhere over the Southwest when the news began trickling throughout their plane. Dwight Howard woke up several of his teammates to share with them what he learned. The coaches heard the news from Kurt Rambis and Director of Media Relations, Allison Bogley. Then Coach Frank Gogol went to the front of the plane to address the players. They were shocked, devastated, speechless. LeBron James, who had just passed Brian on the league's all-time scoring list the night before, appeared broken up, and on and on and on. Um, I don't know. How did you guys go about uh, this piece, putting it together, doing it together? Like, what what were you trying? Was the number one goal to sort of find out how they found out and putting that flight together? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was one of the goals. I mean, I, I like I told you, I was flying also, and so I. I reached out to several people and just, just to, I think, I mean, I think the first thing was to just, just offer condolences because everyone on that flight had some connection to Kobe, you know, like you mentioned the the names that you listed off, Allison Bogley, like Allison worked with Kobe for, for years, you know, as a, as a, you know, on, on the PR staff, she's, she's only been the director of media relations for a few, for a couple of years, but She's, she's known Kobe for so long. Um, the, there, there were so many from players to staff members to, um, just everyone that was on that, pl- that was on that plane. Like there were so many connections to Kobe. And so I, I, I wanted to make sure to be sensitive to that because, you know, I didn't want anyone to feel like I was trying to force them to talk about anything they didn't want to talk about. Um, you know, and, and, you know, uh, Brad and I, Broderick in print, but Brad to me, mm-hmm. um, B or BT to everyone else. Um, BT and I really like, like, we just, we just, you know, reached out to the people that we knew and 
if they wanted to talk, we allowed, we gave them the space to talk and um, gave them the space to sort of tell us what had happened and how they were feeling and, and all that stuff. Um, and, you know, it's, 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 it's difficult. It was really difficult because I didn't, I didn't want anyone to feel like I was exploiting this pain that they felt um, or that I was w trying to push them into something they didn't want to do. I wanted to make sure that anyone who talked to us, they were, that's what they wanted. Like they wanted to share something to help us understand it better. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting. I've had this happen the past two days and it's super weird. So I have a book coming out in a bunch of months about the Shaq Kobe era and yeah. I worked on it for two years and you know, whatever, like all books, you put your heart into it. And I keep having people text me and ask me if I'm okay. And I feel yeah. like the biggest fraud when people ask me that, do you know what I mean? Like you're probably getting that too or yeah. no. No, I, 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 I am. Yeah. And I, it's, yeah, I, I, I very much relate to what you just said. You wrote a piece today about uh, Kobe's uh, relationship with Anthony Davis. The headline was Kobe Bryant didn't mentor many young players. Anthony Davis was an exception. And it's really interesting because you, so you have quotes from Kobe in there. It's a very good story. And you didn't get to talk to Anthony Davis for the story. So you, you quoted him off of social media. And I wonder, um, this whole coverage, everything that's been covered from this, it seems like social media, it's either a gem of gems or it's a way for, for athletes not to talk to the media. How do you view it? Um, I think it's, I, I see it in both ways. Um, you know, the Clippers, the, Cl the Clippers played, uh, yesterday and it was very emotional for them. And, you know, they have so many people who know Kobe so well. Lou Williams played with Kobe. Um, Ty Lu, one of their assistants mm -hmm. played with Kobe also <laughs> in a very different era than Lou Williams. Um, Doc Rivers coached against Kobe. And, you know, that's a, and, and they share, they share the building with him. They shared the building with him, I should say. Um, and that was, so the Clippers played and they didn't, they, they didn't make any of their players available to the media. So, I mean, they made Kawhi Leonard did an interview with the, the like rights holder TV station and that was it. And, you know, I think, I think it's, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of, you know, it, it does feel like players want to, I mean, people want to talk about this. They want to talk about their relationship with Kobe. They want to talk about, they, they, they kind of want to work out. I feel like people want to work out their grief by talking about it. Um, but I, I mean, you know, there's, there's a whole other thing about players and media and doing media and, I think that I don't think anyone at the league was going to force players to do official media access if they didn't want to do it yesterday. Do you think the Clippers should have had their players accessible? I mean, I I understand why you why you would sort of let players do what they wanted to do yesterday. Um, I, I get it. Um, if if they had asked, which it sounds like they did, if they asked for the locker room to be closed, like I understand. I mean, I. I think you have to make, I think you have to, you know, I, I'm, I'm a very, I, I've pushed very much for media access and for the things that we need done. Um, but I also feel like this, this was a very special circumstance. This is a very sad and unusual circumstance. And 
um, it's, it's okay for us as reporters to understand that and to let, let these guys work, work things out. Um, even if it means, even if it means quoting their social media instead of actually getting to talk to them. I've done a bunch, not a ton, like two or three, uh, interviews today. And, um, a question I keep getting asked is relates to sort of how we as a media should handle the sexual assault allegations, obviously, of 2003, mm-hmm. 2004, and whether is a part of his, if it is a part of his bio now, should we bring it up in stories? Is it, is this something we need to analyze when looking at him as a, in a, in a grander perspective? And I was wondering what you thought. I, I mean, it's, that's a, that's a tough thing. I mean, when you, so social media is a very, has a very specific way of dealing with things. But, um, if you, I, I've had both experiences. If you post something that is about Kobe and that doesn't mention it, you have people calling you out and saying, why didn't you mention it? If you post something that does mention it, you have people saying, this isn't the time. This is how, how could you, how could you do this? Like, why would you bring this up? I had someone, I, you know, I, I contributed to our main story yesterday and I had obviously our main story included a mention of that because it was a really significant part of his time in LA and, um, and somebody like found, found me on Instagram and commented on a post that was, had nothing to do with any of this and, and said, how, how you should be ashamed of yourself for bringing this, for being part of a story. Um, and I didn't even, I, I honestly, I'd been doing so many things yesterday. I hadn't even read our story. So I didn't, I didn't even know what this person was talking about, but it, it just showed what a sensitive, what a sensitive thing that is. Um, and I, you know, I think the way we handled it is we talked about it. I mean, we, it was in our, it was in our obit. It was in our special section. It was something that we addressed, um, and something that was a big part of, that was, that was a big part of, of his time in LA. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't, I, I do think that it's important to, cause as a journalist, you want to, you have to consider a lot of different factors and you want to consider the fact that he has a 17 year old daughter and he has a wife who have been through so much over the last two days and, you know, have lost people, have lost so much. And you want to consider that and you want to understand that those, those two people can, you know, we'll see the coverage and, and how it'll affect them. Um, but you also want to make sure to be truthful and faithful to what his actual story was. So I think, I think that's a, it's definitely a difficult, a, a difficult line to walk. I just read a piece on the Hill. I don't know if you heard about this or saw this TMZ scolded by police for breaking news of Kobe Bryant's death before family could be notified. The LA County Sheriff was slamming TMZ and his quote was, it would be extremely disrespectful to understand that your loved one perished and you learn about it from TMZ. That is just wholly inappropriate. And obviously everyone in this business to one degree or another is in, in a race to get, get it first and break a scoop and blah, blah, blah. Do you, do you feel like TMZ was wrong in that regard? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think that, I think that if, if an, if a um, law enforcement agency had said to me, we want to tell the, if I, if I had some information 
and I about somebody dying in a in an accident like this. And the law enforcement agency said, we need to tell the family first. Um, I would talk to my editors, but I think I, and I, but I, what I would tell them is that I would like to, to let them tell the family first. Um, but you know, I, I can't, I can't speak for what pressure somebody else is under, what they're, you know, what they're doing, but I think that's, that's how I would handle it. I would talk to my editors, but I would let them know that my preference would be to let the family, let the, let the family be notified. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine, who has little interest in doing this ad. So, Catherine, why no interest? Just being honest, I don't wear jerseys or t-shirts or hoodies, so I'm not so sure I'm the best person to extol the virtues of 503 Sports. I don't even go to 503-sports.com. But guess what? 503 Sports has just introduced a huge line of women's pocketbooks, bras, eyebrow pluckers, shower shoes. All you got to do is go to 503-sports.com to check it all out. Are you being serious? Uh, sure. I don't know if you feel this way or not, and you may not, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but I'm... I literally sure. just now went to TMZ.com and the joy in which they seem to take in telling this story is a little bit infuriating. The big, bold headlines with the, you know, trying to entice you to click and uh, the photos and all the craft scene sites with this sort of, you know, as much smoke. It, it does seem like there's an impulse. Obviously, we live in a click centric media world where it is all about getting clicks and, you know, showing advertisers that this our site gets this number of it just kind of infuriates me and seems like it's, it's a little bit of the worst of what we do. Am I overstating that though? I, I mean, I, I think getting clicks out of this kind of, this kind of story is, it's, I mean, I mean, it's not worth it. Um, you know, I, we were very careful to not, because you, you just don't know. You don't, when, when another, I think, there, there are people who don't understand quite what our jobs are and who think that the confirming, you know, I can confirm, blah, blah, blah. They think that that is just somebody trying to get attention for something that they didn't break. But that's what it really is, is that you don't know what's true. And, you know, I, TMZ is, TMZ is right most of the time. So I'm not saying that, but, but I think the most important thing was to make sure that you were, you had the information correct and that you had the information, you, you know, you, you had the information correct and that you were, you were providing the information responsibly. Um, I think that that's being a journalist is not just about being first. It's not just about ruthlessly getting to the information that you need. It's about being able to tell the most truthful and insightful story that you can and, and sharing with people what, what actually happened. Yeah. I have a friend of mine, uh, a writer for a roll call named Griffin Connolly. And he, uh, he texted me before he said, I was going to write you something about Kobe, but, but I know you've been hearing it a lot. And I said, go ahead. And this way he wrote, he said, uh, I'm just weirdly affected by it. Unlike any other celebrity death before he wasn't my favorite player. I made fun of his shot selection, etc. but I loved watching him in the debates that followed him. The dude was everywhere in the b-ball world, and half my friendships were built on a b-ball court or talking NBA hoops with people. Kobe was always a part of those conversations. 
I can't get it out of my head. It's like the feeling after you get broken up with or a grandparent dies when you wake up the next day and have to remind yourself of the post-grandma girlfriend Kobe reality. And I thought that was actually really well said. This does feel to me like the aftermath of, for me, the challenges are exploding or Lenny Bias dying or in a way the OJ chase or just these dramatic, I can't believe this just happened sort of moments. And I wonder from your vantage point how you explain that. I think you're right. Like it is, it is one of those, one of those kinds of moments. I don't know if, you know, I, I didn't know Kobe very well. I've, I've talked to him a few times, mostly on the phone. Um, the last Laker game that he was at, uh, me and a few other, a few of the other reporters were kind of like lingering where we thought we'd see him. And when he walked by us, I was the one who kind of ran towards him and said, Kobe, can you come talk to us? And he turned around and he sort of, he like looked at, looked at the, he, he and I had never, I had, I didn't cover him, uh, but the other guys that were with me did cover him while he was playing and he saw them and he recognized them and he was, he said, Hey, he said, Hey, Hey, Hey guys. And then he looked at me and he said, I think we talked on the phone. Um, you know, it's just, uh, I, I think I've gone off course on what you were asking me, but, um, it, it's a, just a, it's, it was a very, surreal day and a surreal thing to think about that that this is this is a person who was so huge in the sport and not someone that you thought was anywhere near the end of his life i mean he and he wasn't he wasn't anywhere near the end of his life um he was someone that was preparing for the rest of his life and there's so much so much that that he he wanted to do I think I went, I think I went totally off. No, no, no. Off don't, on what you were. <laughs> don't, don't you also, don't you also think in a way it's like, so we, we talk about someone and talk, someone dies and we talk about them and talk about them and we talk about their legacy. And there's this almost like incomprehensible truth, which is Kobe Bryant literally does not exist anymore. And it's yeah. just, it's so big and so hard to digest that we don't really know what to do with the information. Yeah. Yeah. He, he had started to put himself really out there over the last like year and a half, I would say, because when I first, when I first started covering the Lakers, that was, it was a year after he retired. And I remember I would reach out to his people like twice, like once a week, almost. Hey, can I talk to Kobe about this? No. Hey, can I talk to Kobe about this? No. And the first time they agreed to do something was when Shaq got a statue and Kobe gave me some time to talk about Shaq. And, and recently he had been really into it. And a big part of that was that, that his daughter, his daughter was very excited about basketball and she wanted him to, she, you know, she, she wanted him to teach her and he wanted to bring her into the world that he had known and, um, so, you know, that, that was, it was different. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, if you don't see Kobe every day. And so it's not that big of a deal to not see him tomorrow. But the fact that you're never going to, he's never going to do something again. He's never going to, he's never going to, going to sit courtside. He's never going to do it, do an interview or a press conference. He's not going to be at the hall. Of, he's going to be inducted to the hall of fame. And he's, he's not going to be there. Like, that's unfathomable. If you had a phone number or an email for uh, his wife, does there come a point when you reach out and see if she'll talk to you? 
I, I mean, I think it depends on the relationship you have with her. Um, I don't have a relationship with her where I would feel comfortable doing that. Um, I reached, I reached out today to some of his, some of the people that worked with him just to not to ask them for anything, just to tell them that, you know, I'm, I was just so sorry for what they were dealing with. Um, and I just, I think that I, I mean, for, for me, like that's, that's where I will leave it. And if, if someone wants to continue to talk, then I'll, I'll be, you know, I'll be happy to continue the conversation, but I don't think this is the kind of situation where you force someone to, to talk about something that they may not want to talk about. I'm going to ask the final question. And uh, I ask it sincerely, like, are you okay? I mean, <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot. It's a heavy freaking, I guess, how hard is this on you? Yeah, a, a lot of people have asked me that. And that was, that was a kind of gist of a lot of the texts that I got from friends of mine, um, as, as the news was breaking. You know, the thing, the thing that I, I just, I, I was not, I, I didn't know Kobe that well. Um, I had talked to him a few times. Um, but I, I've, in the three, in the three and a half years that I've covered the Lakers, I've met and been around so many people that just, love him and and that he was such a big part of their lives and it's been hard to it's been hard to sort of process it through their eyes you know to 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 see how how devastating this is for for so many of them and and what it meant to them and and what their how it's really changed their lives um you know it's it's i think it's a sad thing for everybody you know including myself like it's a sad it's a sad thing to, to realize that this happened and, and I don't even know if it's fully sunk in for me, but, but I, I think what I, what I am, the, what I'm so affected by right now is just how crushed everybody is, how devastated the people that knew him so well and, and these people that were his friends and that expected to see him probably soon. Um, just, just kind of what this is like for them. So I started following his wife on Instagram when I started working on the book and, um, you know, she was a lot of, I hope this sounds, sounds right. The way I say it, she was a lot of sort of selfies and kind of glam pictures and, and, you know, kind of a life that was not one I was familiar with. And sometimes I'd kind of laugh at her pictures and blah, blah, blah. And I am crushed for her. Like this idea that your husband isn't coming home and your daughter isn't coming home and the rest of your yeah. life. And you're going to be raising these three girls and you have this infant who's never going to know her father. Yeah. It is so unspeakably awful that it's, yeah. again, it's, it's, it's really hard to comprehend and to understand what she must be going through right now. It's just unbearable. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think that that's the, that's the most, that is the hardest thing is that there's a woman who her whole Kobe was her whole life. Kobe and her four children were her whole life. She has a 17 year old daughter whose father and sister died. She's, you know, she, this, what's happened to that family? Like the, the, the women that have survived women and girls that are surviving Kobe and Gianna, like that's, that is, I think, the the most difficult thing for everyone to really think about and to to process because it's 
I mean, it's, it's horrible. I just want to say, I have you on my list of people to have on this podcast. And I really am sort of remorseful that this is the subject we're talking about. But, um, I think you've done amazing work. I think everything you've done, uh, over these past few, two days, uh, including your social media feed has just been really classy and really dignified and has really represented journalism in the best possible light. So I, I commend you and, um, I really appreciate you doing this. Well, thank you. I, I was, I'm, I'm glad to be on. I want to thank today's guest, Tanya Ganguly, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Tanya on Twitter at Tanya Ganguly and read her work in the Los Angeles Times. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>